Let's jump in and listen to this. This is God's word, Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, any more, be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That ain't bad. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for your word. These last two chapters, even what we read today is a sample. Uh, It's breathtaking. We know that our eyes haven't seen and our ears haven't heard, nor has it even entered into our heart what you have prepared for us. Even though you've given us little glimpses here and there, but the fullest expression of life with you and redemption through Jesus and the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, we can hardly describe, we can hardly describe a a small portion of it. So Lord, flood our minds and hearts with truth yet again. Bring us to the place where we recognize that the gospel is good news and that we ought to live by the gospel because it is your power unto salvation. So help us to hear the good news and to be changed, challenged, corrected, instructed, equipped for everything. All for your glory. Amen. Last week I mentioned to you that this was the point. God wins and better things are yet to come. Do you remember that? So this week, we start to think together about the better things that are to come. And this week, what I want to do is I want to tell you this. This is, we are just going to talk about the essence of what is to come. In other words, there are lots of phrases, even in the verses that I read for you today, that we're not going to talk about this week. 
because we're going to spend about five weeks in this chapter. So what I wanted to do is just, is just begin to tell you the essence, the very essence of what is to come. But before we can do that, we need to do something that may be a little bit difficult, a little bit challenging, and that is we need to spend a little bit of time talking together, thinking together about what we have probably been told or probably heard about the end of the world. And and we just need to acknowledge this because it is, for many of us, the backdrop for really understanding Revelation 21 and 22. So I want us to spend a little time with this backdrop. I want us to spend a little time acknowledging and admitting what a lot of us have probably been taught and pro- or probably heard about the end of the world. And if you're here this morning and what we talk about in the next few minutes you've never heard before in your life, be thankful but it's not irrelevant for you because you need to understand what has shaped so much of the American church. And if you're going to understand perhaps your parents or even understand your grandparents or your great-grandparents, you're going to have to hear this and take it in, even if you've never heard it before because this is what has dominated the church. So this may be a little painful, maybe a little bit hard, but let's jump in. This is what most of us have probably heard or learned about the end of the world. Let's just jump in. In summary form, the world is going to get worse and worse and worse. And right before things get too bad, we are going to get sucked out of the world, which perhaps you've heard called the rapture. Meaning that for those that are alive during that time, they really will not endure persecution and grow from it and learn from it. They're just going to get sucked out of the world. And they're going to exist somewhere up there, somewhere out there. And whenever the rapture happens and we're sucked out, and by the way, when I say sucked out, I mean like you're going through the drive through lane at the bank. And you put that little tube in the other tube and and you just sucked out? That's what I'm talking about. That like in a minute, they're just going to be clotheslined on the ground. Have you seen all these memes? I mean, come on, this is everywhere. This has permeated our culture, especially in the South. And at the same time that people are sucked out and are just hanging somewhere up there, out there, in bodily form, somewhere up there, Jesus is going to return with some justice bombs, and he's going to blow up this world. And then after that, not exactly sure what's going to go down, but we'll just say this. After you establish that framework, that's when all the debates start happening, meaning there are debates about, well, are we going to get sucked out? Are we going to get raptured out of here before the tribulation? In the middle of the tribulation, after the tribulation, 
These are all things that are hotly debated in this framework. Meaning people start thinking about and debating, well, when is the tribulation? Is it happening now? How are we going to know? Meaning that there are debates about the mark of the beast. Remember? Is it the vaccine? Is it the chip? Remember, we've already talked about some of this, right? The mark of the beast is not a physical, literal thing. It's an ideology that we carry out with our hands. We'll actually talk a little bit more about that today. But there are all kinds of debates about the mark of the beast and, and, and who represents 666. This has gone on for 2,000 years. And people will debate this. And what's even more strange, but actually going a little bit deeper, is that this framework is tied into a particular view of Israel. Meaning that God actually has a plan for Israel and a plan for the church. Such that this framework does not see the church as the true Israel like the New Testament talks about. Meaning literally if you read the end of the book of Galatians, you will find that Paul tells us that we are the Israel of God. But this framework sees Israel as something separate from the church and something that God has a, a different way for, even to such an extent that there are some within this framework who think that the tabernacle will be established again and the sacrificial system will be set up again. In other words, that there's a possibility that there could be two ways to heaven that framework and all those things that are debated has led to so many people being distracted regarding the end of the world. It's led so many people to think that the world is going to get worse and worse and worse. Therefore, I need to focus attention on where I think bad things are happening because it's by understanding those bad things that I try to map that onto the scriptures and then make plans accordingly. And my great hope is that I actually escape out of here. I'll just say one more thing. It's big business. Big business. That whole framework has been big business for the American church for 20-some years. Big business. And with that as a backdrop, we need to look together at the essence of what is to come. Because to whatever extent you have been immersed or a part of that framework that we just talked about, this is going to look a lot different. And it's going to be real hard to put those things together without doing an awful lot of really weird things to make things kind of fit, but not really. So this morning, I want to talk about the essence of what's to come. Just a few quick things. And the, the essence of what's to come, the first thing is this. Look at the text with me in chapter 21. Heaven is coming 
down. We're not going to get sucked out of here and earth get blown up. Heaven is coming down. Did you notice these words in Revelation 21? And I saw, verse 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Beloved, the day is coming in which heaven and earth will be reunited. And you might say, but doesn't the Apostle Peter talk about in his letters that the earth is going to be burned up? Yes. And when God talks about fire, it is a refining fire. It is not an annihilating fire. God is going to purify the world He is going to consume all of the evil and darkness and root it out and get it out by the root because he is coming down. Because there will be a new heaven and a new earth. This earth will be, as Jesus says in the Gospels, regenerated. Beloved, please take this in. At least consider it. Our God will never surrender this earth. He will never surrender this earth to the enemy. It won't happen. Take what you know of the scriptures and apply it in this area. Think about the coming of Jesus. Think about the incarnation. Jesus is fully God and took on human form, right? He came to this world, right? He took on human form, right? Why did he do that? Because he loves the world. And he is infuriated with the darkness and the evil and the death and curse and the disease and all that is going on in this world. It infuriates him. And he came here to do something about it. Think about the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. Why? You know this. To reign victoriously over death, right? To take out the sting of death, right? He did it so that we would have a new body. And that new body would be joined with our soul. Because God created us body and, excuse me, soul. In other words, the message of Christianity is not just about your soul. In other words... The truth is that everything is not just materialistic and that materialism is all that actually is and then it just goes away. The message of Christianity is that no one is more materialistic than God and no one is more spiritual than God because God loves the material world and he made the material world and the things in it and he wants us to live in it body and soul so that Christianity has the highest view of material things has the highest view of the world and the highest view of the soul. Beloved, heaven is coming down. That's pretty exciting to think about. Here's the second thing. You might have heard this one before. God always completes what he starts. Look back at these verses. What does it say in verse 3? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is describing for us the presence of God. This is saying that God's presence will be everywhere. And when you look back at verse 1, it might be odd to you to start Revelation 21 in verse 1 and then end with this little phrase about there will no longer be a sea, no sea anymore. And this is deeply connected to the presence of God. And I know you're wondering, what in the world is he talking about? What he just said in the last 75 seconds didn't make a lick of sense. Do you remember when we looked at chapter 4 and 5? And we got the glimpse of the throne room. Do you remember the hymn, Holy, 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 that talks about the glassy sea? You remember that? In the Bible, the sea is always communicating uncertainty. So that in Revelation 4 and 5, when we get a glimpse of the throne, what we see is that what is usually uncertain, the sea, is now like crystal. It's like glass. It's calm. But here... Because of God's presence and evil is no more, we have no uncertainty. It doesn't exist anymore. Uncertainty isn't there. It isn't here. It isn't going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Do you remember the counterfeit? Do you remember where the beast came out of? The sea. But now all enemies have been put away. So when this is telling you about God's presence is saying, there was a time when God's sovereignty extended so that there was never anything to be afraid of because of his sovereign power. But here, God is on the throne and there is no more sea. There's no more uncertainty. His presence permeates everything and he has gotten rid of darkness and evil forever so that now there is only certainty. So that now it is us being present with him and him with us so that we are dwelling together and living together. This is an amazing picture. And this language that's used here, that God will dwell with us and we will be his people and he will be our God, this is the, capital T-H-E, promise of all of Scripture. If you were to take these literal words, I think that they occur over 20 times in the scripture. I can't remember the exact number at this moment, but it's, I think it's over 20 times, and something that's similar to this is over 50 in the scripture. This is the promise of the Bible, that we will be with God, and he will dwell with us, we will be his people, and he will be our God. And it's so powerful because of this. That's how things were before our rebellion. Remember back in the garden? What was life like? We were walking with God. He was present with us all the time. We were fulfilling his mission to love each other and love him and fill the world with his glory. Do you remember that? And then rebellion happened. And even though we weren't there physically, you know that Adam and Eve felt the difference of one day living with God, walking with God, talking with God, and the next, they were put out of the garden. But beloved, God has given this promise to remind people like me and you that this is the way things are supposed to be. Because we would never imagine that we could live with God. 
We would never imagine that we could be with him in his presence. We would never imagine that. So what was true before the fall, God had to promise after the fall to say, oh no, the way that I set up the world, that's the way it's going to be. I'm going to be with you and you're going to be with me and we're going to dwell together forever. This promise is in Genesis. It's in Exodus. If I'm not mistaken, it's in Leviticus. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in the Psalms. It's in the prophets. It's in the New Testament. And here it is here at the end of the Bible. This is what God has been telling people for thousands and thousands of years. And now... This one reference point for the entire universe has become the only all-encompassing reality. This is all there is. There'll be us and God and creation like it's supposed to be. And that means, that means that the time is coming in which we will be drawn into the holy circle of Trinitarian fellowship and love. And all of creation will exude what it is, what it's what it was made to be forever. Can you take that in? The time is coming. This is a little glimpse of what's to come. This is the essence of the future. Heaven's coming down. God's going to dwell with us. And we're going to be drawn into the holy circle of divine Trinitarian life. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to be drawn into that fellowship and love. And all of creation will exude its purpose forever and ever and ever. Can you imagine that? I hope you will. I hope you'll try. It means that God always finishes what he starts. You get it? And do you know what the essence of being in his presence forever will be? In exuding our purpose of why we were made forever and ever? Look at chapter 22, verse 4. We will see his face. You notice that? Look at chapter 22, verse 4. We will see his face. And then there's a comma, and it goes on to talk about those who have the mark of God on their forehead, right? Again, this is not that we're all going to get tattoos of Yahweh on our forehead, okay? It's meant to say that all those who have been given the mind of Christ, that's one of the benefits of his death and resurrection is that we have the mind of God. We can think God's thoughts. This is why the New Testament talks about how we're supposed to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, right? It's not because one day we're going to get it tattooed on our heads. It's because one day we will only think God's thoughts, one day the ideology that we love and believe and are learning now will be all that we are. So the time is going to come in which we won't even be temptable. We will not be able to sin 
Why? Because we will think God's thoughts perfectly forever. More on that in the weeks to come. This is the point. We're going to see his face. We're going to see the face of God. What's the beatitude? Blessed are the something, for they will see God. Is it merciful? Something like that? This is nothing new. This is what even those in the New Testament that wrote the books were looking forward to, to seeing God's face. Now I want to invite you in at this point, as much as I can. I want to invite you in. I want, I'm, I'm, I want to ask you, will you think about your walk with God? I want to invite you into mine in the hopes that you won't use it against me, but in the hopes that you will take the time on your own to think about your own walk with the Lord. So I want to invite you into mine. I have uh, followed Jesus for most of my life. And throughout my life with Christ and life in Jesus, I can tell you that God has brought me joy that I can't hardly express. There have been times in which he has absolutely and utterly rendered me speechless because of what he has done, either for me or for others, speechless. Obviously, there have been times where I've wept and cried. There have been times in my walk with Christ in which I have cried because I've been so angry and mad. I've been frustrated with him. I've argued with him. I've pled with him. I haven't been happy about things that have happened to me, to others. I can tell you that in my walk with Christ, that even though there have been times in which I felt like he hasn't been present, I know that he's never left me. I could give you examples of things that he has literally lifted off of my back. You know what I'm talking about? Shame that I have carried, matters that I have struggled with, responsibilities that were too great for me to carry, yet some reason and for some, for some reason I felt like I had to carry them. And he is, I've literally felt him lift them off of my back. I've experienced the freedom of forgiveness over and over in my life. He has promised to be my God. He even says that he's not ashamed of me in the Bible. He has promised to be a God to my children. And if you're looking for someone, or if you're looking for me to be the someone 
that obeys super quickly, I'm not your guy. There have been a lot of times in my life where I've been very slow to repent and probably a lot slower to obey. But the day is coming when I will see his face. And I don't think that he's got a lecture prepared for me. Do you? Well, don't answer that because you probably do. You probably think, oh yeah, he's got a long lecture for you, Dave. Of course I'm being sarcastic. I don't think that when I die and see him face to face, that he's going to have a list of questions for me. Many of them passive-aggressive. You know how we like to use passive-aggressive questions on people, right? Don't think he's going to have those either. I can't imagine that he's going to see my face and say, there's some things I want to talk to you about. Can we relive some of this stuff? What I know he's going to say to me Well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Do you believe that's for you too? We're just talking about the essence of the world to come. Heaven's coming down. God's going to finish what he starts, and we're going to see his face. And that means that I want you to think about your own life and your own walk with Christ. I want you to think back through your life in similar ways that I have or better, and end it, but you're going to see his face. He's going to tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. Now receive much. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And if you think about that, then I want you to connect all of this back to where we started. In other words, what reality are you living into every day? What reality are you living into? Are you living into the reality that thinks that Jesus really hasn't accomplished anything? Therefore, you expect things to get worse and worse and worse? Are you living into the reality that your greatest hope is really just to get out of here? Whether you get sucked up or just leave? Are you living into the reality that if you just leave and get out of here, that you know that before you leave, you need to do a couple things? One, you need to share your faith because you're terrified at how much evil is gaining in the world. 
Are you living into the reality that not only do you want to evangelize because you're afraid about how much you think evil is advancing, but that you want to gather together in a holy huddle and try to insulate yourself from all the bad people and bad things that are happening before you just get out of here? Are you living into that reality? Are you living into the reality that you have to have an enemy to ever be motivated to do anything? And when the enemy that you're currently on gets tired and weary and not as powerful as before, you got to find a new one to get you ramped up and to get you going again? Is that the reality that you're living into? Or are you living into the reality that Jesus has actually accomplished something? And you know that evil will advance in the world. That's true. But you're not surprised. You know that darkness will advance, but you're not surprised. You actually are trying to live by what Christ has accomplished. So you want to share your faith with those that are around you and even your enemies because you know God loved you when you were his enemy. Not because you're afraid, but because you love. And it means that you want to not only love other people, but you want to help build his church. And you want to see new churches planted. And you want to see churches become healthy. And you want to serve in the church and build up the body. And you want to wrestle with what does it mean for me to live out my faith and my work? Those are hard things. You're going to live out of that reality? Will you live into that reality? So that your purpose and motive and mission are driven from and flow out of what is invincible, which is the gospel and Jesus and his church? You want to obsess over what is inherently unstable that will never get you anywhere other than more angry and frustrated. Where is God moving in you? Where is he pressing on you? And beloved, I ask you that question, what reality are you living into? Not because I'm trying to back you into a corner and say, what side are you on? I'm not trying to do that. Hear me, please. I'm asking you the question, what reality are you living into? Because I want you to be challenged to live out of and into the fullness of Jesus. Because even if you want to live out of and into the fullness of Jesus, you're always going to be tempted to look over here and say, well, it's a whole lot easier for me to be motivated by this evil and darkness advancing here. Do you get it? I'm trying to push you. I'm trying to challenge you. I'm not trying to back you into a corner and say, choose which one, because then you'll just do the right thing. I'm trying to get you to wrestle and to think trying to get you to be challenged to live into the fullness of Christ and to be motivated by him and what's true and good and invincible. And the only way to do that is to keep coming back to him. 